Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Our lecturer today is Dr. David Bebbington. He is professor of history at the University of Stirling in Scotland, one of the most prolific and insightful evangelical historians uh, anywhere in the world today. I'll never forget when I first read his book that became really a, a classic, Evangelicalism in Modern Britain, a history from the 1730s to the eight, 1980s, uh, where he sets forth uh, the four major characteristics. We call this the Bebbington Quadrilateral of Defining Evangelicalism. Evangelicals, he says, are cruciocentric, focused on the cross, bibliocentric, the Bible is front and center. We are conversionistic and activistic. Well, I think that's a wonderful uh, array of characteristics that cover a wide swath of evangelicalism has been adopted by many, many scholars. He's also written what I think is one of the very finest one-volume overviews of Baptist history called Baptist Through the Centuries, A History of a Global People. came out in uh, 2010 from Baylor University Press. Well, uh, Dr. Bebbington has been to Beeson Divinity School on several occasions, and he's coming back. Next year, February 24 through 26, 2015, he will be presenting our William E. Conger Jr. Lectures on Biblical Preaching, especially on the theme of evangelical preaching. A wonderful scholar. This is a lecture he takes us back into the heart of Texas, back before the Civil War, uh, when Baptists were first coming into that part of the world, and he describes for us a local Texas revival and what happened in that revival and the continuing impact it has had and continues to have uh, on Texas life and Texas religious cultures. A fascinating, detailed lecture uh, that is the mark of a master historian to be able to give that sort of detail and yet make it such an interesting narrative and story. Well, let's go and listen now here at Beeson Divinity School to our friend Dr. David Bebbington as he speaks on Revival in the Heart of Texas. My topic this morning is The Struggle for the Soul of Texas, Revival at Washington on the Brazos, 1841. Texas declared its independence from Mexico on the 2nd of March, 1836, and became a free, sovereign, and independent republic. The vast territory of Mexico, newly independent from Spain, was in administrative chaos. American settlers flocking into its territory from the east had had enough of chaos and so established their own state, not within the United States, but entirely separate. Only four days later, there was a more famous episode, the Alamo, which had been occupied by Anglophone Texans, fell to Mexican troops, and the occupants were massacred. In the following month, the Texans had their revenge they won the Battle of San Jacinto under Sam Houston, capturing the Mexican president himself. And they secured a grudging acceptance by Mexico of the existence of the Republic of Texas. But the Mexicans were not reconciled to the loss of their northeastern territories. Over the next few years, there was a constant threat of war against the rebel province. There was a succession of border incidents, in 1842, a full-scale Mexican invasion. 
Texas lived on the knife edge. Gradually, the independent republic found foreign recognition, but not confidence from foreign investors. The state enjoyed no credit and was virtually bankrupt. It was eventually decided that its future lay with the United States, and it was annexed in 1846. But over a decade, Texas was a crucible of experiment. What was the Republic's future to be? This was a cultural as well as a political question. What social, moral, intellectual forces would shape this new land? There was a struggle for the soul of Texas. The place where Texas independence was declared was Washington on the Brazos. In 1841, halfway through the existence of the independent republic, there was a Baptist revival in the town. I want to suggest that this revival provides a key for understanding the cultural history of Texas in that period. Further, the episode reveals forces engaged in comp competition for the domination of the adjacent United States and indeed for the whole of the English-speaking world. Through the microcosm of the revival at Washington on the Brazos, we can appreciate the macrocosm of the evolution of Anglophone culture in the 19th century. Let's begin with the background. Washington stood on the Brazos River of central Texas, 254 miles north of its mouth, just west of Houston. The town was at the reputed head of navigation, in the year after the revival, the first steamboat came up the river to Washington, but unfortunately plans for a regular steamboat service were abandoned after it sank on the return journey. The route from east to west through the state, the La Bahia Road, passed through the town, which had a ferry from 1822. The site therefore had potential as a communication centre. It's located in the, an area of pleasant rolling countryside, replete with woods and water. Unlike the more arid prairies to the west, it attracted foreigners and farmers. It produced corn, cotton, cotton and sugar. Yet in 1841, it was still very much on the frontier. The last buffalo in Washington County was not shot until 1850. This was where newcomers from the more settled southern states encountered the Wild West. The town was laid out in the 1830s by a speculative developer and named after Washington, Georgia. It was particularly popular because there were hopes that since the town was the birthplace of Texas independence, it would be named capital of the state. Yet the population was small. In 1840, the population of the whole area was only about 600, and in 1841 itself, there were only just over 100 adults permanently resident in the town itself. Therefore, Washington was a place of intermittently grand pretensions, but in reality, a tiny frontier settlement. A Baptist church was formed in the town in 1837. It included eight members, and some colourful characters such as Noah T. Byers, general merchant, armourer to the troops who won San Jacinto, and later a Baptist preacher, but a man whose zeal commonly outran his judgment. In 
The leader of the Baptist Church was Zacharias N. Morell, a preacher in Tennessee before he arrived in Texas in 1836, but an untrained man, a very volatile one, probably an abler Indian fighter than minister of the gospel. The church started work on a meeting house and invited the American Baptist Home and Foreign Mission Organizations to send a full-time minister. While the request was under consideration, however, the church disintegrated. The Republic of Texas chose as its capital Austin, not Washington, in 1839. And the people who had hoped to profit from the development of the town once it became the capital moved elsewhere in search of better fortunes. The church dissolved, though a handful of former members lived on in the town. However, three other Baptist churches formed in the vicinity in 1839, including one at Independence, only 12 miles down the road in Washington County. In the following year, these three churches constituted the Union Baptist Association, and so there seemed to be very good prospects for the area. Therefore, the first representative of the American Baptist Home Missionary Society to arrive, James Huckins, who eventually came in 1840, decided to recommend the sending of a second agent to Washington County. This was William M. Tryon, who became joint pastor of independence and determined to restart the cause in in the town of Washington. The church there was organized in March 1841, with 12 members. It was agreed that Tryon should preach monthly and he arranged a regular Sunday school. The church clerk, Anderson Buffington, one of the members of the earlier church and a licensed exhorter, was an ardent soul winner. And it was Buffington who was the leading spirit in a series of prayer meetings for revival in the spring of 1841. The scene was set for a remarkable awakening. The revival can be outlined briefly before its wider significance is explored. On Saturday the 24th of July, 1841, the monthly meeting of the church was held. Tryon, the minister, brought with him a man of some eminence, Robert Emmett Bledsoe Baylor, a former member of the Houses of Representatives of Kentucky, Alabama, and the United States. Now a Texas judge, Baylor traveled round the state and preached as an ordained Baptist minister whenever he was not dispensing justice. In fact, he occasionally got confused and challenged the congregation with the words, and now members of the jury. He'd helped Tryon start the Washington church four four months before. Buffington and his friends from the prayer meeting told the two ministers that they thought the Lord would visit the meeting. Buffington preached in the afternoon, Tryon in the evening, but nothing in particular happened. On the Sunday morning, however, the temperature rose. A slave girl, accepted for church meeting the previous day, was to be the first baptismal candidate of the new church. On the banks of the Brazos, Tryon lectured on believers' baptism, and Baylor baptized the girl. The public drama of baptism seems to have stirred the town. When Tryon preached in the afternoon, hearts were moved. In the evening, there was an even greater concern to seek salvation. Tryon had to leave to care for his ailing wife, and so Baylor led the evening prayer meeting. Two actually professed conversion there. 
Seeing his hopes for an awakening being realised, Buffington rode off on the following morning to bring back Tryon. So on the Monday afternoon, Tryon preached to a crowded congregation and a popular town physician, Thomas J. Hard, expressed a personal faith. That evening, he and the two converts of the previous day and another new convert were baptised in the Brazos by Tryon. At an after-meeting, the account of the Philippian jailer relating to baptism was read from Act 16. Ten citizens were anxious inquirers, and three of them professed conversion. On the Tuesday, Tryon felt compelled to leave for his wife's bedside, but Baylor remained and baptised another four that night. The prayer meetings continued every evening that week, and further baptisms took place too. There was an intense spiritual atmosphere. Baylor ended the remarkable series of meetings the following Sunday. It was a deeply stirring episode in the history of the young town. The revival was particularly striking in three respects. First, it had made a major impression in terms of numbers. Overall, 31 or 32 professed conversion and 24 were baptised. Others were left for baptism later on, with six being immersed on the 23rd of August. The following year, the church reported 50 members. Now, these absolute numbers may not seem large, but they represented a huge impact on so small a place. Reports are unanimous that nearly every individual in the town was drawn into the services. More than half the adult citizens who had not previously made a profession of the Christian faith now did so. So the little town was transformed in the proportion of active Christians. Secondly, the converts were commonly prominent figures. They included Thomas J. Hard, the physician, who owned 640 acres, four town lots, spent lots of time in his calls on his patients, and who was notably frequent as a witness of legal documents in the town. Hard was remembered as a good and noble soul. Robert A. Lott, who started taking a denominational paper that fall, was probably another convert. The 1840 Texas census, he'd owned 496 acres, eight slaves, 16 workhorses, 75 cattle, and one stud. He also possessed a pleasure carriage, then a rarity in the town. The person who was baptized, though previously converted, was the wife of Henry R. Cartmel, a town businessman, who in 1840 owned four lots and two clocks. The Texas census was remarkably thorough. We know how many clocks there were in each house. These were the folk who set the tone of Washington life. All the accounts stress that the respectable, their word, respectable citizens were affected. Thirdly, the revival spread beyond Washington. Tryon and Baylor went on in August to preach at similar events nearby. At a place without a church, eight miles up country, there were 21 conversions and 12 baptisms. At Mount Gilead Baptist Church nearby, there were 39 baptisms. The flame of the awakening, once kindled, readily burned over the adjacent area. The Washington revival made a very significant impact. The stir caused by the revival can partly be explained by its atmosphere. As an old man in the 1870s, Judge Baylor recalled the events in which he'd played so prominent a part. 
He particularly remembered the baptisms after nightfall, the first ever performed at Washington. The proceedings, as he recalled them, started at the courtroom, which was where the Declaration of Independence had been signed. It served also as the Baptist place of worship. There was only one hall in the town. From there, the congregation marched in procession, singing hymns down the main street to the River Brazos. Baylor had asked the candidates to dress in white and wear white handkerchiefs round their heads. This was no doubt a practical measure to keep the hair under control in the water, but the whiteness of the handkerchiefs echoed the symbolism of the clothes. The candidates were being baptized into purity. A beautiful strand of white sand running out into the river reinforced the impression of whiteness, contrasting with the surrounding darkness. There, recalled Baylor, we stood on the strand, not a cloud was to be seen in the heavens, and the silver moon with her train of brilliant stars threw their light down on this beautiful, touching, and solemn scene. The baptisms took place. The large crowd on the bank joined in the songs, and after the last one, quote, we stood silently for a moment to listen to that song with its echoes as they died away in murmur down the Brazos de Dios. The 17-year-old youth, the son probably of one of the baptismal candidates, confirms the power of the event, saying that the solemnity of the occasion, the hour of the night, the glittering of the moonbeams were unforgettable. He added another element, the thought of the savages in the forest not far away, the danger from Native Americans, though receding, was still there. Noah T. Byers, former business partner, was to be killed by them three years later. The awareness, therefore, of a sinister presence lurking among the dark trees strengthens the sense of contrast between light and darkness, good and evil. There is something here of the sensibility of Fenimore Cooper's Last of the Mohicans, published a few years later, earlier, about the descriptions of the scene. Here, at Washington, in reality, not fiction, people were enacting great deeds in an evocative landscape. They were creating something serene and noble in the wild country. They were molding a new Texas. What then were the rival elements competing with the Baptist revivalists to shape the young republic? There is a great deal of evidence in and around the revival of the hostile forces in the field. And first, there was the rough culture that flourished on the frontier. Washington contained a large transient population, birds of passage as they were called. Although generally respectful to the more permanent residents, they loved to prey on greenhorns newly arrived from the States, tricking the greenies, as they called them, into handing over their savings was a favorite pastime. Many of these ne'er-do-wells were attracted by the horse racing regularly organized just south of the town. Their gambling, though technically illegal in the Republic, flourished openly. This section of the community loved whiskey and cards, spending much of their time in the two main bars, especially the one run by John Rumsey, who, unlike the other, gave credit. Drink sometimes spawned violence, and it's noteworthy that the Methodist preacher who sometimes visited the Washington bar to hold meetings wore pistols when he preached. 
The streets of the town looked no different on Sunday from any other day. The rough element loved to ridicule the pious. Knowing the Methodist preacher's favorite hymn was Blow Ye the Trumpet, one of them disturbed the service by blowing a steer horn outside. Pseudo prayer meetings were held in a bar. They would sing imitation hymns, pass round the bread and wine, and even copy the inflections of the Lord's Prayer on a violin. Z.N. Morell claimed that this type of mockery ended in the 1830s, but memories, memories of it were fresh when Tryon arrived in the town. It was a type of satirical counter-theatre that sought to undermine religion by exposing it to ridicule. This was tacit recognition by the rough culture of the threat to its very existence posed by evangelicals such as Methodists and Baptists. One of those who wrote accounts of the revival at the time gave particular prominence to this form of popular irreligion in Washington. Joseph Huckins was the senior American Baptist Home Missionary Society agent in Texas, reporting regularly on the progress of his, to his employers. Huckins was a New Englander, born in New Hampshire in 1807, who was trying to recreate New England on the shores of Texas at Galveston. He was well-educated, having trained at Brown University under Francis Wayland, and had attended courses at Andover, the leading theological seminary, while Baptist minister in the town. He'd served three New England churches altogether before enrolling in the Home Missionary Society and being dispatched to explore the possibilities of a mission to Texas in 1839. After 20 years in Galveston, he was later to move to the prestigious pulpit of Wentworth Street Baptist Church in Charleston. To Texas observers, Huckins seemed too much the intellectual, always reading his sermons, engaging in argument, and weak in his gestures. It was his mission, he supposed, to bring greater refinement to the unpolished republic. On meeting Judge Baylor for the first time, for example, he looked him over and immediately ordered a new suit of clothes for him from a Houston merchant. From the flourishing port of Galveston, he wrote disdainfully of the area around Washington as the interior. His aim, as he put it, was to give system and order to the excitable and impulsive material which preponderates in this country. Huckins did not disapprove of revival as too expressive a form of religion. On the contrary, he warmly approved it. But he saw it as having a particular role. It was to civilize the natives. Hence, Huckins' accounts of events at Washington place great emphasis on the moral transformation of the town. He depicted the place before the revival in the darkest hues. This town, I suppose, he wrote to a minister in New York, has exceeded any town in the Republic for its wickedness. Gambling, drunkenness, murder, and every species of vice reigned. This place, he wrote to the Home Missionary Society secretary, has been the high ground of Satan for years. But the revival, he wanted to insist, had effected great change. Some of the most desperate men in the country, he wrote, were there prostrate before God, pleading for pardon. Where mock prayer meetings used to be held, real prayer meetings now took place. There had been, as he put it, a moral revolution. 
His motive in this type of description is transparent. He's trying to show the supporters of the Texas mission in New York and New England that their efforts are worthwhile. Thus, he wrote to the Home Mission Secretary about what he calls your missionary labors in Washington. The money contributed back east, where Huckins had toured on behalf of Texas, was bearing fruit. Revival, Huckins was explaining, was vanquishing roughness. To a remarkable degree, however, reality corresponded to the image presented by Huckins. Converts entered a Christian world with higher standards of behavior. The Union Baptist Association to which Washington affiliated that same year had rules of decorum for its meetings in which mutual respect was ensured. The appellation of brother, ran Article 12, shall be used in the association by members in all cases. Liquor, if at all, was to be used abstemiously. The association had already endorsed the formation of temperance societies so that the stream of liquid fire which has desolated other countries may not blast and wither the rising prospects of this young and interesting republic, as they put it. Tryon, three years later, was to urge the churches of the association, in similar words, to discountenance those broils and feuds which set law and government at defiance and are the blast and mildew of our country. Instead, church members were to disseminate the examples of forbearance. His own church at Washington led the way. It's true that not all the converts remained faithful. Five years after the revival, church membership was down from 50 to 36. Yet it was remembered that after the revival, Washington was never as wild as before. It seemed a suitable place to which to transfer the seat of government of Texas in the following year. The reasons for Sam Houston's decision to move the capital back from Austin were many. He wanted the administration to be less exposed to Indian and Mexican attacks, and intriguingly, whereas the town of Houston required rent for accommodating the government, Washington was willing to make its provision to the bankrupt state entirely free, a strong motive. But another reason was more personal. The sister of Houston's second wife, Margaret, was Antoinette Bledsoe, a devoted member of the Baptist Church at Washington, who must have reported on the transformation wrought in the town by the revival. And the lead in Washington's invitation to transfer the capital there was John Lockhart, almost certainly one of the prominent revival converts. So Houston, who was himself to be baptized in 1854, must have been swayed by the knowledge that Washington was now a much more respectable place for a seat of government. Members of the church, subsequently, were drawn into the high life of a capital city. In March 1844, several were excused by the church for attending a public ball. Potential sins were now more likely to be those of elegant society than those of the Wild West. The revival of 1841 marked an epoch in the life of the town. A second hostile force threatening the new Texas, alongside the rough culture which we've just looked at, however, was not a symptom of social laxity, but a feature of intellectual life. What was called at the time infidelity, and often by its advocates, free thought, 
was widespread at the time. This did not always mean outright atheism. More common was deism, the acknowledgement that there was a God who had created the world, but allied to that the supposition that he took no further interest in it. Deists denied the doctrines of providence, the conviction that the Almighty cares for the world he brought into being, and of revelation, the belief that God made known his will and purposes supremely through the Bible. Deism was a typical belief of the secular enlightenment of the 18th century, professed, for example, by Voltaire, and it had been embraced in some form by many of the founding fathers of the United States, including Thomas Jefferson. Usually containing a strain of anti-clericalism, deism seemed to many a natural accompaniment of republicanism, a repudiation of autocracy in the universe as in the state. Several deists lived in Washington on the Brazos. It was one of the achievements of the Washington revival to bring several of these to full-blooded Christian allegiance. Among the lead converts, we're told, were several leaders in infidelity. Three of them spoke during the revival. They publicly warned sinners of the great danger of their fighting against the king of kings, almost as though republicans were being turned into monarchists. Unbelievers, the converts urged, should cease their rebellion and accept the king's terms of mercy. Free thought was a live intellectual alternative to Christian faith in early Texas. The most striking instance of a freethinker converted at Washington in 1841 was William H. Ewing. Possessing an extensive acreage because of military service in the Texas Revolution, Ewing was living at Washington by 1837 and acted as a local judge. Deftness, however, forced him to give up practice of the, of the law, and instead he turned to teaching in the town. I'd have thought that's rather a strange decision. I think you need to be able to hear to teach, but that's what he did. Like many small-town teachers, Ewing was something of an autodidact intellectual. He read widely, he took a special interest in deism, devouring every book he could find on the subject over 20 years and accepting its leading principles. Hearing of the plan of the Baptists to hold a public immersion in the Brazos on the first Sunday of the revival, he attended in pugnacious mood. He seems to have been specially incensed that the baptismal candidate was a black slave. Perhaps Ewing thought her insufficiently educated to make any commitment to Christian belief. Standing on the banks of the Brazos, Ewing denounced the whole event unsparingly. Immediately afterwards, however, he appears to have felt remorse and started to consider whether perhaps those involved in the baptism were in the right after all. He no doubt attended the second baptismal ceremony on the Monday evening because, as he put it, the baptizing at night was a sight which called forth holier and more sublime feelings than I ever expect to experience again. By the Tuesday, he joined in the revival service as a seeker of mercy himself and embraced a personal faith in Christ. Ewing described the awakening for the press in rapt terms. He'd heard of no greater revival, he confessed, save the days of Pentecost. He did make an exception. There was still a trace of deistic language in his account of what happened. He wrote of the happy beings offering praise to him who is worthy of all adoration. But there was no doubt of his sincerity. 
At the meeting of the Baptist Association in October, he several times testified to what God had done for him. In the following February, he was licensed as an exhorter and preached at Washington. He even contemplated becoming a full-time preacher, though that did not happen. And in 1846, he was once more acting as a local judge. But he had quickly gained the confidence of his brethren. He was appointed to the Association Education Society, its formation in October 1841, and was clerk to the association in the following year. Ewing was the prize convert of the Washington Revival. Both before and after his conversion, Ewing was eager for the advance of civilization. In the years before 1841, he'd conceived it as the spread of rational knowledge, free from all taints of superstition. That was no doubt the ideal he set before him when in 1838, he was preparing a printing press in Washington with all its appurtenances. He planned to print a regular newspaper, but the plan failed to come to fruition, probably because of the dispersal of the town's population that soon followed. This scheme for promoting the values of the secular enlightenment came to nothing. The most enterprising Baptist in the town, however, Anderson Buffington, acquired the press from Ewing and in partnership with a friend started a newspaper called the Tarantula, very common in the fields around Washington. Publishing weekly on a Saturday, the newspaper was launched in March 1841, the same month as the Baptist Church. The initial issue transcribed the minutes of the first meeting of the Baptist Association and in an editorial appealed to the Baptists of Nashville to send them books and hymn books. A Baptist library, it remarked, is much needed in this country. The newspaper's devotion to Baptist affairs during the spring of 1841 must have been one of the causes preparing the public mind for the revival that followed. But the tarantula operated in difficult conditions. So scarce was paper for printing in the town that Buffington went round from door to door collecting blank leaves from the children's spelling books to make his newspaper with. He was also short of subscribers. Buffington dropped out of its, uh, its management in October 1841 and the newspaper ended in the following year. But for a while, the newspaper tried to promote a very different formula from that which Ewing had projected. Whereas Ewing in his unregenerate days had envisaged the press as an organ of secular progress, Buffington saw its enlightening role as bound up with the cause of religion. For Buffington, faith and book learning belonged together. After his conversion, Ewing came to look at things in the same light. By 1845, he was publishing another newspaper himself, The Lone Star and Southern Watchman. And he'd already stated his new ideal in 1841. In the revival, civilization had taken religion as an helpmate, as he put it. The cause of civilizing Texas, Ewing now believed, would be helped rather than hindered by true religion. Faith would not subvert reason, but reinforce it. Ewing's belief in the power of converting religion made him less exclusively Baptist than other rapporteurs of the revival. The other three main accounts of the time were composed by Baptist ministers and a Baptist deacon, and so treated the episode as something of a denominational triumph, with one of them rejoicing that a Methodist was immersed. Ewing, by contrast, 
emphasized Methodist participation in running the revival. For him, from him we learn that the Sunday school organized in the spring of 1841 was staffed jointly by Methodists. From Ewing too, we know that a young Methodist played a large part in the revival itself. This was J.D. Giddings, then district clerk for Washington and later the chief entrepreneur of the town of Brenham, which largely by his agency supplanted Washington as the county seat. I am happy in being able to say, remarked Ewing, that during the whole of our revival, the Methodist brethren in this place and vicinity were our able coadjutors. The Methodist circuit that included Washington had been served in 1838 by an able minister, Robert Alexander, and four lay preachers, but the cause had not prospered. Although one of the doctors of the town, W.B. Smith, was a Methodist, numbers in the town overall were low. The chief Methodist stalwart in the vicinity was Amos Gates, a planter who lived five miles to the south and allowed a protracted meeting on his land soon after the revival. But in 1841 itself, Methodism in the town was at a low ebb, with no class meetings and no prayer meetings. The Methodists were therefore less rivals than partners in the Washington Awakening. Long afterwards, a youngster recalled that there, were then no, there was then no discord over baptism, as there was to be later on between Baptists and Methodists. Hence, Ewing was pointing to a significant dimension of the awakening. It ignored barriers between evangelicals of different denominational persuasion. What defeated infidelity was an evangelical united front. The third force competing for the soul of Texas was admittedly a weaker one. It was, however, potentially serious for the energetic Baptists such as Huckins and Tryon because it was an internal grouping in the denomination that threatened to divide and neutralize its efforts. It consisted of the so-called anti-missionary Baptists, often later called primitive Baptists. The anti-missionaries were high Calvinists who emphasized divine sovereignty. They did not object to the standard preaching of the gospel because that was a God-ordained instrument of his purposes. But they did object to the newfangled agencies such as the American Baptist Home Mission that had sent its men to Texas. It was serious to them that such bodies were constantly demanding money from church members. They didn't like that. But the fundamental anti-missionary case was that there was no scripture warrant for such organizations. The societies purported to do what the Almighty would achieve by his own agency, the gathering of the elect. The anti-missionaries therefore resisted any support for societies, whether for mission itself or for education. There was more than a hint of anti-intellectualism about these people. Modern learning, they held, was a snare that could divert the believer from the simple message of the gospel. In the vicinity of Washington, there were several anti-missionary Baptist preachers. The initiator of Independence Baptist Church in 1839, Thomas Spraggins, was of that persuasion. So was Abner Smith, founder of the Providence Church in 1834. In 1840, Smith refused to join the newly founded Union Baptist Association. When his church objected in the following year, he, and I quote, assigned the ground that he is not a United Baptist, 
but claims to be a regular disunited Baptist. Such men believed with some reason that they represented the traditional Baptist convictions of their forefathers. Anti-missionary Baptists were uncompromising defenders of ancient ways. Baptists such as Huckins and Tryon, the so-called missionary Baptists, by contrast, welcomed modern thought. They broadly upheld the principles of the New England theology that emerged among the successors of Jonathan Edwards in Congregationalism, softening the sharp edges of traditional Calvinism. The Baptist who best represented their point of view was Andrew Fuller, the English minister who was the first secretary of the Baptist Missionary Society. To Judge Baylor, for example, Fuller was great and good. Fullerism was still Calvinistic in upholding the sovereignty of God in electing to salvation, but it held that if sinners ultimately perished, it was their own fault. Fullerites rejected the doctrine of double predestination, the belief that God himself was responsible for consigning the unsaved to perdition, and they're usually therefore styled moderate Calvinists. They were equally moderate in accepting the pragmatic temper of the times. Techniques not set out in the Bible could be employed in achieving the great aim of spreading the gospel. Thus, there could be societies for missions and education. These were the means the Almighty used to exercise his sovereignty. The moderate spirit, the pragmatic temper, were alike signs that these Baptists had come to terms with the Enlightenment. They were prepared to modify their traditional principles in the light of contemporary knowledge. Unlike the advocates of the secular Enlightenment, they were not abandoning the Bible, but they were presenting the teaching of Scripture in a form more palatable to an enlightened age. From the start, the Union Baptist Association adopted Fullerite principles. Article 7 contended that when sinners were not saved, it was because of their voluntary rejection of the gospel. Four years later, the association adopted the New Hampshire Confession of Faith of 1833, a widely used statement of the same moderate Calvinistic standpoint. So Washington and the churches with which it identified was of the more modern persuasion. They were missionary Baptists identified with the moderate Enlightenment. One advocate of their views was James L. Farker, a man concerned to ensure that missionary Baptists triumphed over their anti-missionary contemporaries. Farker was the sole deacon of the Washington Church at the time of the revival. He was 34 years old, originally from North Carolina and then from Mississippi. In 1840, he decided to move to seek his fortune in Texas, settling four miles from Washington on the road to independence. He owned 640 acres, and his wife, Hulder, was the owner in her own right of 15 slaves brought from Mississippi. In the first year, he planted about 20 acres of cotton, which turned out to be of high quality. A visitor reported that he considers the cotton land superior to any in Mississippi or Florida, and equal probably to any in the whole world. Farker was, in fact, an enthusiastic patriot for his adopted land. He wrote with pride of our country and of the infant republic. He claimed to know nowhere where as good attention was paid to sermons as in Texas. So, Farker was eager for the new nation to adopt the right outlook, 
That outlook was the Fullerite paradigm. Accordingly, in his report of the revival, Farker stresses some of the themes of moderate Calvinistic theology. Centrally, he contends that the Almighty was a God of means. The Lord certainly possessed all power in heaven and earth, as the anti-missionaries insisted. But that did not mean that believers were to leave the spread of the gospel to divine providence. On the contrary, unless means were used, very little good would be done. One means was able preachers. Farker wrote of Tryon as someone sent by the Lord as an instrument in his own hands. Another means was prayer. Farker drew attention to the prayer meeting, seeking an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that preceded the revival. Through prayer, Farker believed, the gospel would spread throughout the globe. Like Jonathan Edwards, he looked for the salvation of the whole earth. He was a post-millennial optimist, expecting the universal triumph of the Redeemer. The revival at Washington was evidence that God was fulfilling his promises and blessing the use of means. Farker was recognized by his contemporaries as being well-versed in theology. The association put it on its committee over the Articles of Faith in 42 and 44, so that he was one of those responsible for the formal adoption of the New Hampshire Confession. These principles, he believed, would confute the anti-missionaries. May the Lord convince them, he wrote in his press report of the revival, of their error in opposing the spread of the gospel. Farker was deploying the awakening as a vindication of missionary Baptist convictions. Those convictions had to be articulated by a well-educated missionary. Farker had been dismayed at the time of the foundation of Washington, the Washington Church that Tryon, the properly qualified minister, could preach there only on one Sunday a month. He didn't think that adequate. He regarded those as unfavorable circumstances which made the revival that ensued the more remarkable. So Farker was one of those who saw the supply of trained ministers as an urgent requirement. He fully backed the creation of a Texas Home Missionary Society at the association meeting following the, following the revival, became its vice president and treasurer, and, uh, and it was to support preaching in the destitute parts of this republic. The society immediately appointed Anderson Buffington, the hero of the revival, as its paid missionary, dispatching him into the adjacent Montgomery County. But Buffington had no formal theological training, and both Farker and Tryon saw that as essential. Tryon believed that the first attempt at a Washington church in the 1830s had failed partly because Morell, its pastor, was an unpolished front frontiersman. The church, as he put it, lacked the right kind of ministry. It was Tryon who first suggested the idea of a Baptist literary institution in Texas. At the association meeting in October 1841, encouraged by the news of the revival, the association set up a Texas Baptist Education Society with the aim of creating an academical and theological institution. The result, after a stage of money raising and petitioning Congress, was the establishment in 1845 of Baylor University, named after the judge who conducted the revival. Its first instructor, Henry Flavel Gillette, was an Episcopalian whom Farker had invited to come to Washington to open a church, to open a school, Union Academy, in the summer of 1841, immediately after the revival. 
Farker remained a devoted backer of Baylor University until his death in 1873. That institution was an embodiment of the victory of the missionary Baptists over the anti-missionaries in Texas. On the one hand, it provided the education that the anti-missionaries thought superfluous or dangerous. On the other, it was sponsored by a society, a non-ecclesiastical agency that the anti-missionaries considered unbiblical and subversive. Baylor University, therefore, represented the acceptance of the modern use of means in a way acceptable to the Enlightenment. The fourth element in the competition for cultural hegemony in Texas was Campbellism. Alexander Campbell, after whom the movement was named, was an Ulsterman who had come to America associated with Baptists but who had gradually adopted distinctive principles. Campbell believed that the task of the age was the restoration of the pattern of the primitive church. The New Testament to Campbell was a sort of law book. If its principles of church order were followed, Christians need not be divided by any theology derived from any other books. Campbellites habitually appealed to reason, holding debates with free thinkers in which they expected to win. They deplored any requirement for religious experience that might cloud the intellect. They denounced Methodists with their insistence on assurance of salvation for introducing a false mysticism into religion. The Campbellites can rightly be seen as taking the acceptance of the Enlightenment much further than the Fullerites among the Baptists. Campbellites held that true religion consisted solely in mental assent, not in personal faith. Thus, they would baptize anyone willing to profess that Christ is the Son of God without any exploration of whether or not that that person had passed through a conversion experience. Theirs was a religion of the head, not of the heart. This radical Enlightenment perspective on Christianity was propagated by Campbell through his magazine, The Millennial Harbinger. It circulated widely among Baptists, from whom Campbellites were not yet distinct. Only gradually did they emerge as a separate denomination, turning into the disciples or churches of Christ. Meanwhile, Campbellite views posed a challenge to many Baptist churches. This outlook started making inroads into the Washington region in 1840, the year before the revival. Near Lagrange in Fayette County, just to the south, a Campbellite church was set up on his estate by Colonel John H. Moore. At Lagrange, there was also a Baptist church, and its minister, Thomas W. Cox, was soon influenced by Campbellite views. Another of the three churches Cox served was Independence, Washington County. There, a deacon, Dr. John J. Clough, also embraced Campbell's principles, and early in 1841 immersed Lindsay P. Rucker, a Washington schoolmaster. This was a double affront to Baptist principles. The baptism should have been performed by an ordained minister, and the candidate was not required to relate his experience in coming to salvation before baptism. William Tryon, who became pastor in Washington in March 1841, had also been appointed co-pastor at Independence. In the same month, he preached against Clough's Act, and the church resolved that Rucker's baptism was invalid. Tryon was setting his face against Campbellite teaching and practice. He must have feared the same views would outcrop at Washington 
12 miles down the road. Tryon was well fitted to resist a theological and pastoral challenge. Born in 1809, he'd been a protege of Charles D. Mallory, minister of First Baptist Church, Atlanta, Georgia. Mallory had encouraged Tryon to become one of the first students to pass through the Mercer Institute, now university, to gain academic credentials in theology. Subsequently, Tryon had served the Georgia Baptist Convention, raising funds for mission and education in the manner of a missionary Baptist. He was then minister successively of three Alabama churches, one of your own, in one of which, Bethlehem Baptist Church, Barber County, there was a revival in 1838, so he'd experienced revival. Having met James Huckins, he volunteered for pioneer service in Texas with the Home Missionary Society. So Tryon was a man of wide experience when he came to live halfway between Washington and Independence in Texas. His style also fitted him for an encounter with the Campbellites. Although his Bible knowledge was not thought to be equal to that of other preachers, he had a gift of presenting old truths in a fresh light. He was capable of reasoning in the pulpit, habitually putting the middle fingers and thumb of his right hand together to make a cogent point. But he also probed the conscience in his sermons, exhorting his congregations powerfully. Judge Baylor remembered that he made solemn appeals to the sinner and caused him to feel that, as if the doom of eternity hung upon the choice that he was about to make. Tryon could deploy pathos and sometimes wept in the pulpit. So he combined reason and emotion. He could meet the Campbellites on the field of reason, but unlike them, he believed that religious experience was the kernel of true faith. Tryon's perspective is evident in his conduct of the revival. He wanted to generate not just intellectual conviction, but personal commitment. After his preaching had affected the congregation, an invitation, as he put it, was given to those who desired the prayers of God's people. Members of the congregation who were anxious to seek salvation had to indicate their condition by raising a hand so that believers could offer intercessions on their behalf. There was also a mourner's seat at the front where those wanting prayer to be focused on them for salvation could go. This element was very much in the style of Charles Finney, whose lectures on revival of religion, 1835, had recommended this special measure. Tryon emphasized in his account of the awakening that deep feeling and streaming eyes were appropriate. He particularly reports a very respectable citizen talking to him afterwards and saying that this is the first religious meeting at which I ever wept. In a similar way, Baylor, who carried on the revival after Tryon, was known for his willingness to shed tears in the pulpit. His favorite sermon, in fact, was on the text, Jesus Wept. Those responsible for the Washington revival were not afraid of emotion. Their conception of religion was that it was a matter of the heart as well as the head. The struggle with the Campbellites in the locality came to a climax in the immediate aftermath of the revival. The association meeting in October 1841 was held under the auspices of the Lagrange Church. Its minister, Thomas W. Cox, now a Campbellite himself, used the opportunity to invite people to become candidates for baptism. They were merely asked three questions about their intellectual opinions and nothing about their religious experience. Huckins protested, but Cox responded that this was an affair of the church alone, not for outsiders. 
Now, as it happened, news that Cox had been involved in shady business dealings in Alabama arrived at this juncture, and the church was able to exclude him for improper behavior. Hence, only a few Campbellites followed him out of the church. But that was an extraneous issue. Alabama came to the rescue. The other two churches where Cox was minister also suffered disruption. The Independence Church, where Cox and Tryon led opposed parties, was won for the Baptists by a single vote, though the bulk of members remained after that. The Travis Church also divided down the middle, with 20 remaining in the church and 17 excluded as Campbellites. Washington had no similar experience of schism, partly because the two leaders, Buffington and Henry R. Cartmel, had been at Nashville, Tennessee, when a battle was fought in the First Baptist Church there against Campbellite entryism. They knew what to resist. But it was also partly because of the revival. When religious emotion was so obviously manifest, it was hard not to see personal experience as a necessary qualification for baptism. The revival therefore played its part in resisting the challenge of the Campbellites. The radical enlightenment in religious guise was contained. Therefore, if we sum up, the awakening at Washington on the Brazos in 1841 was near the heart of the cultural strife over the future destiny of Texas. Because the Republic was marked by frontier conditions, the rough culture loomed large. Most weighty citizens, however, believed that the young country must be civilized. A central question was how far should there be an influx of enlightenment influences pervading the English-speaking world to get rid of the roughness, to substitute civilization. According to the free thinkers, the solution was the secular enlightenment with its exclusion of revealed religion. But Christian people were not content with that solution. They differed among themselves, however, about how far to allow religion to be affected by the rational currents of thought associated with the Enlightenment. The anti-missionary Baptists were stalwart in their views. There must be no watering down of high Calvinism and no compromise with new-fangled societies. There must be total resistance to the Enlightenment. Campbellites, on the other hand, wanted to apply rationality more deeply to religion and so to adopt a radical Enlightenment form of Christianity. Each of these forces, however, went down before the missionary Baptists. Assisted by the Methodists, they claimed Washington on the Brazos for the evangelicalism that had blended Christianity with Enlightenment influences, but discriminatingly and only in a moderate form. The missionary Baptists won the battle against roughness, the secular enlightenment, resistance to the enlightenment, and the radical enlightenment. The future of Texas lay with evangelical religion. In the year before the revival, Judge Baylor wrote of the potential of the young and beautiful republic. If we, he went on, as instruments in the hand of providence, shall be enabled to give the moral and intellectual elements of society here a happy direction whilst this country is in its infancy, unborn millions will rise up and call us blessed. The awakening gave Baylor, 
Tryon and their colleagues the opportunity to do exactly that. The Washington Revival of 1841 was a pivotal evangelical victory in the struggle for the soul of Texas. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.